Welcome to Reframed, a podcast created to educate, encourage, and inspire parents and professionals. The research is clear. Parenting a child that has a history of loss, abuse, neglect, or trauma requires parenting skills and insight to be reframed. We partner with child welfare experts to bring you evidence-based and research-driven information. Reframed host, Emily Moorhead, LPC, and guests strive to make an impact on our world by creating conversations about topics that are important to you, your family, and our communities. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Reframed. I'm your host, Emily Moorhead, and I'm joined with Chris Bryant. Chris, tell me about yourself. Well, uh, I live and work in the Oklahoma City area, and I lead a group mental health practice called DBT Institute Oklahoma City, and we live and breathe dialectical behavior therapy. Awesome. Tell me what DBT actually is and why that's your passion. So yeah, DBT is a mouthful and we have um, plenty of acronyms. So um, it stands for Dialectical Behavior Therapy. Um, The dialectical part means it's kind of a fancy philosophy term for two things can be true at the same time and we don't have to pick either or. And so this plays out a lot with people who are struggling to deal with their emotions um, because they think they have to be one way or the other and it's about helping people find more balance in their lives. Um, The behavior part of that is that uh, DBT is a way of doing counseling and therapy with people that helps them change their behaviors and helps them build a life worth living. And so um, there is a sense of uh, what is contributing to this behavior and how can we either change it or um, redirect it or um, not make things worse. And so um, there's a lot of science behind DBT, and there's also an art behind it as well. So why would someone seek DBT therapy? What are, what are typically the presenting problems? Um, who is the population that it's most helpful for? Yeah. So DBT was originally designed to work with a condition known as borderline personality disorder. Um, but it has also been shown to be really helpful for people that are just struggling with their emotions, um, depression, anxiety, anger. Um, eating disorders, among other things. And so oftentimes people have no idea what DBT is, they've never heard of it, but they go to a doctor or they end up in the hospital because of their mental health condition and their doctor tells them, you need DBT. And so then they Google it and then they try to find a DBT therapist and, um, and sometimes that's hard to do. Yeah, so if I was a therapist interested in exploring this as maybe um, a way to treat clients, what steps would I take to pursue something like that. Absolutely, so um, there are a number of like continuing education providers that will do kind of an introductory training to DBT. The really in-depth intensive trainings come from an organization called Behavioral Tech, which comes from the, um, the founder of DBT, Marsha Linehan, and that's her, her um, organization that provides the vast majority of DBT training to professionals. So if someone I loved was experiencing you know, some of those distress symptoms, I would look at you know a DBT certified provider. Yes, okay. so, so the DBT certification is relatively new, but there is definitely a process for people to get that certification. Um, and I would I would encourage um, providers to go ahead and do those introductory courses. I encourage people to go ahead and even practice as a DBT informed provider after that. Mm-hmm. And then if they want more education, they can dive in as deep as they want to go. Okay, break down the principles for me. I know that there are some guided principles, some 
some just mindfulness. Can you kind of walk me through that? Yeah, so the way I describe it is kind of like East meets West. So it kind of takes the best of scientific psychology and what we've learned about, um, you know, how our thoughts and our feelings are connected to each other and how we change behaviors. And there's a lot of kind of logic built around that. Um, but it also borrows from the best practices of Eastern philosophy, like mindfulness and like just being aware of this present moment and learning how to accept things that are outside of our control and not trying to control everything all the time. So it's saying that we need both of those perspectives. We need to learn how to accept and also how to change. Okay. And what are the principles that you work towards? Are there certain components that are part of your therapy? Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the overarching purpose really is to help people build lives worth living. And, but to get from here to there, um, it takes quite a bit of kind of like structure and support. So we offer in DBT, you know, a combination of individual or family therapy, um, usually on a weekly basis. And then there's also a group component where um, people can go to learn skills. And the thing about DBT is there is a plethora of skills that we teach. Most of them aren't new to mental health professionals and even um, our clients sometimes are like, well, I've used that skill before, I just didn't have a name for it. Mm -hmm. So um, we try to teach them um, four categories of skills. Um, the first is mindfulness, distress tolerance, interpersonal effectiveness, and emotion regulation. And all of those skills are designed to kind of um, help people deal with the symptoms of borderline personality disorder and other issues that they might be experiencing. Why would you say that those skills are hard for someone with borderline personality disorder? Yes, so borderline personality disorder has a number of symptoms. Um, and, um, you know, it goes back to oftentimes their experiences in childhood, both from birth, like um, their brain is wired differently, they're very sensitive to emotion, and they have, um, a, you know, difficulty kind of dealing with emotions because they feel everything very, very strongly. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of biological. That's a part of their temperament and what they came into this world with. And then you combine that with maybe a, um, an environment in their childhood that was maybe less than nurturing. Mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes, you know, the typical American family can sometimes be less than nurturing because sure. there might be certain expectations put on them or you know, not everybody, you know, not every parent learns how to validate their child's feelings. That's like a skill that not everybody has access or, or learns about. And so um, that combination of things leads to um, someone feeling like their emotions are not valued or they don't matter. And it makes them not trust people and are, they're worried if, if their relationships are real or not. And it also leads to a lot of impulsivity because they're just trying to regulate their emotions oftentimes. And so um, those skills like mindfulness, uh, mindfulness helps people kind of slow down and helps people um, become aware of what they're feeling in their, in their body and in the, that present moment. Um, distress tolerance helps people to not act as impulsively. So it allows people to learn how to sit with their emotions long enough to make a wise decision. Um, interpersonal effectiveness is really valuable because oftentimes people have burned their bridges mm -hmm. with their family and their friends and their coworkers, And so it's really breaking down the nuts and bolts of how to find people to be in a relationship with, how to navigate, you know, balancing wanting to help others and also wanting to respect yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and then emotion regulation skills are kind of that foundation of 
how can I put the pieces in place in my life so that I'm not in crisis all the time? And how can I um, reduce my own vulnerability to being in crisis? Mm -hmm. So all of those things put together really help people um, to have a life that's worth living. So I'm interested because I'm wondering, you know, with some of these symptoms, with trauma history, it can be exasperated. Would you say that that's true? Yes, absolutely. So um, we see uh, oftentimes individuals with these traits or symptoms, they have experienced some kind of trauma. And one definition of trauma that I really appreciate is anything that is less than nurturing. Mm. And so um, it may not have been a traumatic event or, or a history of abuse, but it could have been you know, a parent or a caregiver who um, dismissed their feelings or who um, kind of pushed them away when they were having a hard time with something. And so that stays with you. Um, and so um, it absolutely is very beneficial for people experiencing trauma. And what I've learned is that oftentimes people who have dealt with trauma, they don't feel safe. Mm -hmm. And um, the skills that we teach in DBT help people to validate themselves and they also can teach their family members and loved ones how to validate that person because it's not just a matter of oh um, I've got to learn these coping skills so that I can deal with my own stuff it's also about teaching other people how to create an environment where they for once in their life feel like their feelings matter mm -hmm. and that's not just the individual's responsibility it it has to do with um, the people around them and how they're responding to their needs um, and I think that's a particularly important um, issue for adoptive families who may um, who may not know how to respond to their child that has really big emotions yeah. all the time. So what would what tips would you provide? Maybe they don't think maybe they have a young child. Uh, what tips would you provide to kind of bridge that gap for them? Maybe their child doesn't need full-blown therapy oh, sure. but they might need some help with that. Yeah um, I think with children it's really important to give them one-on-one -on -one time mm -hmm. and just allowing you know, the child to be themselves. Mm -hmm. And so um, learning the skills of um, being able to say, wow, you're feeling sad right now or you're feeling happy right now, um, that, can, that is validation and that tells them, wow, my feelings matter. Um, and then just learning um, the ability to say, you know what, I, I can see that you're upset right now. I think I would be upset too mm -hmm. if that happened to me. Mm -hmm. um, and just saying, you know, I'm in your shoes as well. You know, sometimes I have days when I feel um, like I'm going crazy and my head hurts and I can't figure out what's going on inside my head. Um, just that can be a huge thing, especially with a child that is new to a home. Um, it helping them feel safe, you know, for the first time in a, in a long while. And again, it's that safety component that you talked about. So if someone else has felt this emotion, then it's not just me. And so yeah, that there's some yeah. safety there. Yeah, there's a lot of fear with with people um, being worried that that they're crazy, you know, mm -hmm. and sometimes one of the best things we can do is say, you know what, if I were in your shoes, I think I would have the exact same experience. You know, you're having a normal reaction to a really abnormal situation. Mm -hmm. So tell me, I know personality disorders, there's typically diagnostically an age that's appropriate to diagnose and not appropriate. Sometimes people get labels early when they shouldn't. What is your recommendation yeah. there? So um, the DSM-5, which is the manual that we use for diagnosing, um, you know, requires someone to be 18 or older before you make a full diagnosis of a personality disorder. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes there are traits that can be identified before that. And it's important for families to seek help you know, for their child if they're concerned about some of those traits, even, even if they're under 18. 
Um, so, but I really caution people against, you know, labeling their child, especially with a personality disorder. I heard somebody say one time, you know, mental health stigma is hard enough. Mm -hmm. um, try, try having a personality disorder. And why is that? Well, I think people, people think that there's no hope for mm -hmm. individuals with a personality disorder. And the reality is that there, there is a lot of treatment available. Um, and we've sort of mapped out um, what it is that people need who are experiencing you know, these conditions. So yes, the message is there is hope. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, it's oftentimes not easy. It's not easy to find the right professional to work with. Um, and personality disorders, you know, is there a cure? I'm not sure, mm -hmm. but I know for sure that people can live as if mm -hmm. that disorder, that condition is not impacting them. And you've seen that through your work, I'm assuming. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, people oftentimes are going to have to have pieces in place to help them, you know, deal with that condition um, for the foreseeable future. But um, other people may not have any idea that they're experiencing that. So we talked about the DSM. Kind of walk me through what some of the DSM says could be symptomology that would incline you to wonder if someone had pers a personality disorder, specifically borderline. Yeah, yeah. So in general, personality disorders can kind of be identified as, you know, having a persistent um, difficulty interacting with others in a variety of settings. So if someone's just not having good relationships at school or at work or at home, by themselves, that might not mean they have a personality disorder. But if it's happening everywhere with everyone, um, then that's a reason to be concerned. So with borderline personality disorder, a big issue is a fear of abandonment mm -hmm. um, and a tendency to kind of see things as black or white. So sometimes there's this phrase, you know, I hate you, don't leave me. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea of um, one minute the person um, sees you as the best thing in their life and they love you and you're perfect. And then the next minute, you know, they don't want nothing to do with you because they feel hurt by you or they don't like something you did. And so that, that splitting um, phenomenon is one, one trait of borderline personality disorder. There's also quite a bit of like impulsivity and self-destruction. So suicidal and self-harming behavior um, as well as kind of reckless behavior or doing things without thinking. Um, and then... Um, the last um, kind of trait or set of traits with borderline personality disorder is just really intense um, uh, emotional dysregulation and not really having a sense of self, not having a sense of what their emotions are. They just describe it as feeling like a big emotional mess. And it feels like um, the worst experience of their life oftentimes. And they, they truly honestly don't believe that they can survive it. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, one person described individuals with borderline personality disorder as like having no emotional skin. And every little touch is like, it's like a third degree burn victim. And so we have to, we have to treat them with care. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, um, you know, people don't understand what their needs are. And so they, they end up burning more bridges or they can't ever feel safe. And so DBT, the hope of DBT is that nothing's really going to surprise us. Like we can more or less handle it. Um, and these behaviors sometimes are really stressful and really challenging, um, but there is a plan for it in the DBT model. The, you know, there is a, an expectation that these issues are already present and we already have a way of sort of dealing with them. So how would you advise parents or therapists, because when I'm hearing you describe the traits that someone who has DBT may have, mm -hmm. I do hear trauma. And so how do you look at it through the microscope mm -hmm. and determine 
what's what and how to categorize it. Yeah, um, you know, my assumption at this point is that pretty much everyone that I work with has experienced some kind of trauma. And what that tells me is I need to handle with care. Mm. And, um, and I need to respond with compassion and understanding first. And there's, a, there's kind of a sense in DBT that it has a lot of structure, which it does. There's a lot of skills. There's a lot of things to learn and practice. And there's some things that we put in place to hold people accountable. But I don't often leave with that. I mean, it's a part of the, the treatment. But as, but as far as beginning the therapy, I want people to feel safe and to feel validated and understood. And I think most, most mental health professionals begin with that anyway. That's how you build trust. And the, and the safety of that allows people to consider making changes. So I kind of lead with that acceptance piece and acknowledging how hard it is to be in their shoes. Um, and oftentimes that helps them to kind of consider how they can move forward. I think that's a great answer. And I think I like the idea of just handling everyone with care, just as mm -hmm. humans, we all need yeah. that. I wonder if a parent was one, you know, concerned about their child with traits, what steps would you take to advising them to determine if their child needed therapy or maybe if they just needed to, to you know, practice more some emotional regulation? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think it's important for, for families to always kind of consider, like, their um, primary care physician to be, like, a go-to person, right. not just for physical health issues but also for behavioral health issues as well um, because sometimes they can... Um, most, most primary care doctors have kind of a referral list of mental health providers as well. Um, but if they have real concerns about, um, you know, if a child needs to be diagnosed or um, needs to be further evaluated, then I would recommend a psychologist. Um, and psychologists can do a really in-depth assessment and then provide lots of recommendations and resources for the next steps. Um, but a mental health professional is also trained to diagnose and they do kind of a more brief psychosocial assessment. Um, but, you know, starting with, you know, searching for um, a provider on psychology today, um, that's kind of a, the largest, like, resource directory, and you can search by location and specialty and do they take your insurance and what are their private fees, and you can kind of read a profile about the person and see kind of what their background is, and so I really encourage people to start there, um, but also, you know, just Googling DBT in your area. Um, is a great way to kind of start as well. But, you know, honestly, it can be hard to find someone with this type of specialty. And, you know, our goal at the DBT Institute is to kind of elevate DBT and to provide more training and more options for people, you know, you know around the country. I mean, I'm a therapist, and I didn't quite know exactly how to find a specialized know, DBT right? therapist. And yeah. you walked me through that, and that was really helpful. Yeah. And so I think it's hard for families and people who love someone who's struggling to navigate that system. Oh my goodness, yeah. Yeah, it's hard for us mental health professionals mm -hmm. to do that sometimes. And so I think that's probably, um, you know, the hardest part of, about our mental health system is that it's just difficult to navigate. Um, the, the providers are there, the resources are there, but yeah, helping, helping them take those next steps um, is, is really good. So when we talk about access to mental health and resources, what age is appropriate for DBT? Yeah, so DBT was originally designed, I think, primarily for adults because that's who has uh, borderline personality disorder. Um, but over time, we have found that the skills are really helpful for teenagers and even um, like preteens. And so 
um, you know, 10 to 12 years old is when I would first recommend DBT because there is a, a large cognitive component. You have to have a little bit of insight to kind of learn and understand the skills and put them into practice. Um, but there now are some adaptations of it where, that really focus on mindfulness and helping children to kind of be aware of their thoughts and their feelings and how they affect their body. And, um, and, and another part of that is helping caregivers to be mindful as well. Mm -hmm. And I know that a big part of, of your organization is helping parents to be more mindful in general. Absolutely. We use a lot of TBRI, which is trust-based relational intervention. I'm a TBRI practitioner Welcome, as well. Welcome, me yep. as well. Most of our guests actually are too. It's a foundation that's used quite commonly in the adoption world. Um, and so what we see with TBRI and relational neurosciences specifically is that connection piece um, and that trust piece with our, and I, I hear in my mind that that lives well together, but as an educator for TBRI um, and a DBT practitioner, does that live together well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I found it to be a great combination because um, in DBT, there's a sense that we can develop a real relationship and a re relationship based on trust um, with the, the children and the adults and the caregivers that we serve. And so, yeah, the mindfulness piece and um, the relationship and building trust piece are really critical in both of those approaches. I love when all the worlds can live together because yeah. there's you can have tools from your toolbox right. to pull out um, and all knowing that they live together in the same, you know, um, research base and, and that they speak the same language I think can be really helpful for parents who just need you know more tools when they're in the yeah. struggle and they're in the trenches of things. Yeah, absolutely and sometimes I know families feel like is this going to get any better? Um, I, they feel stuck and then sometimes I think going back to that idea of it's not all black or white um, sometimes parents are afraid to they, they don't want to be too soft on their children they want to have some structure and appropriate discipline to address the behaviors that they're dealing with, but they also know that they have to have compassion and trust and they have to focus on that relationship as well. And so in DBT and in TBRI, we would say you can have both. Um, and you know, moving forward with, with both of those things can, um, can I think help parents to feel like they don't have to choose between one approach or the other. I think with parents, sometimes when we try to practice both like structure and nurture, we mess it up. Yeah. But I'm hearing in DBT, the language is emotional regulation. Yes. So I think even acknowledging for parents, if they, they did make a mistake and how they addressed a, you know, a behavior or there was a really hard day, that they can even show their child um, through that mindfulness of, I'm struggling today and I, I shouldn't have said the thing that I said and I want to try again with you and tomorrow's going to be a better day. Um, even that, that practice of on themselves can be so healing to the whole family unit. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, caregivers oftentimes, you know, are very critical of themselves. Yes. And so, you know, I always want to support caregivers as much as I'm supporting children. And um, there's a principle in TBRI and as well in DBT of separating the person from the behavior. You know, the child is precious and that's non-negotiable. Um, but these behaviors sometimes are really challenging. And so even as parents and caregivers, you know, we can say um, that my behavior was not effective. My behavior was not, not true to what I'm trying to um, promote in my family. Um, but there is something that I can do about that to repair. And I can give myself some understanding um, and compassion as well. 
I'm imagining if someone is parenting a child or loving someone with, you know, a borderline personality disorder, that it can be hard and that there are days that, you know, that grace that they need for themselves mm-hmm. is so important. Um, and just knowing that there's, there's space for that because practicing emotion is really important. I would love to ask you about, we talked about skills, um, and so I'd like to leave our viewers maybe with an example of mm-hmm. one of those skills and something that they could practice at home or in the yeah. car, and what, what could you give me? Yeah, so one of my favorites is called urge surfing, and um, it's a fun skill because it's very concrete and it doesn't take a lot of time. It also has a great name. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so uh, if you think about some of the urges that people experience, they could be an urge to eat chocolate, or you literally and, just read my mind. Yeah, That's right. my urge. <laughs> or an urge to, you know, watch Netflix or an urge to be angry mm-hmm. um, and impulsive. Um, it's the idea of if we can train ourselves to notice the urge, and that takes a lot of practice, but um, notice the urge and then set a timer. And you could start with one minute, five minutes, ten minutes, set a timer, think about what that urge is telling you to do, but wait on it. And then after the timer goes off, then you can reevaluate. Do I still want to act upon this urge or do I want to do something else? And you know, you can decide to eat the piece of chocolate, but at least you're deciding in that moment instead of just reacting and being impulsive about it. Okay. So, um, and sometimes, you know, we're going to start with the small things like chocolate and then work our way up to the big things like self-harm. Mm-hmm. So That's a great skill. And I think that it's something that it's pretty applicable for parents to show their child that they're even practicing. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I think it's important for parents to start with themselves and practicing that. And sometimes um, just taking that moment to pause can give us a little bit of a buffer so that we are being mindful and conscious of our parenting and how we respond as opposed to just reacting to our emotion. It's always the goal, absolutely. So Chris, tell us how to stay in touch with you. Mm -hmm. You've given us a lot of great resources that we'll link in the show notes, but Mm -hmm. I would love to learn more about your practice and how we can stay connected. Yeah, so our practice website is dbtokc.com, and um, we encourage people to um, learn about DBT on that website, and they can also request an appointment. That's kind of the best way to get the process started is to request an appointment online. That way we have their information. And, um, and we can kind of verify their insurance and, you know, correspond um, that way. And then, um, you know, our team of DBT trained, DBT living and breathing therapists, you know, is available to, to help folks um, who may want to work with us, but may just need some information and resources about what's happening in their area and how they can get connected to a DBT provider in their area. And we also do trainings for mental health professionals. Um, we have a training link on our website, and um, so we encourage you know people to check that out. One which I've attended, and it was the best ethics class oh, I've gosh, ever sat you're, through. You're very so, kind. <laughs> yeah, it was a wonderful class. We will link all of Chris's resources today in your show notes, as well as a guide to finding a DBT therapist in your area if you're not in the Oklahoma area. Thanks so much for tuning in. We look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for listening to Reframed. Visit GladneyUniversity.org to access the show notes and learn about upcoming trainings at Gladney University. We'd love your feedback, so please rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.